Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. All right, you guys, we have been on a kick of talking about our fertility journeys and our periods and our menstruation and understanding our bodies and taking back control of our bodies and our reproduction, our reproductive health. And one thing that I learned when I was in grad school, which you know, now saying it out loud, it is a little embarrassing that I didn't know about this until I was, what, 22, 23, 24 years old, is anovulation. Do you know what that is? Anovulation is where you don't ovulate. Well, in terms of our reproductive health, that could be super problematic, especially in terms of fertility. If you are trying to get pregnant and you're not ovulating, that could obviously pose some problems. So I had a ton of questions about what causes an ovulation. If you have irregular cycles, does that mean you're not ovulating? If you're not ovulating, is there a way to bring that back? Did something cause it? Is there something that we can do to prevent it? I obviously didn't know all of these answers. So I reached out to my friend, Elise Barnes, who is an embryologist. And I wanted to get her, her, her wisdom, her knowledge. I wanted to pick her brain all about the things that we know, the signs, the symptoms. How does it get started? How do you know if you're ovulating or you're not? What about using OPKs? Will they accurately predict? That's ovulation prediction kits. Will they actually tell you and pick up on if you're not ovulating? What is the accuracy of those? I'm so thrilled to welcome on Elise because she is a skilled embryologist specializing in the field of reproductive medicine. She's a passionate educator leveraging her extensive knowledge to educate and advocate for fertility awareness. She also does a fair amount of dispelling misinformation and providing support to people in understanding what is happening in their bodies and how they can take control of that. I'm so stoked for this conversation today because while it may not impact a lot of people out there, for the people who aren't ovulating, I know that this conversation is going to be life-changing. You're going to have so many of your questions answered today. You are going to feel so totally empowered when you leave this conversation and you're going to have a list of questions that you can take back to your provider to help get you started in the right direction in taking back control of your reproductive health, whether that means just simply bringing back your ovulation or starting a family of your own. So without further ado, Elise, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm super happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited for this topic. So typically when I have people on the show, I know about the topic that we're talking about. Usually 
I know about it deeply or just have like some shallow knowledge, but very rarely do I have somebody on the show where I know absolutely nothing. And you, my friend, are one of those people. And this is one of those topics. And I could not be more excited for this conversation. Fertility is something that our team has just started to support. And when we were thrown into this world of IVF and fertility and infertility, I realized like, wow, there was an entire portion of our bodies and our existence that we know nothing about. So this conversation is going to be a first for many of our listeners. It's a first for me. So let's let's just like kind of dive right in. As an embryologist, what do you do? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So as an embryologist, we are responsible for all things IVF lab. So we are kind of behind the scenes. We are the ones that if you've done any sort of fertility treatment, you probably don't know who we are. <laughs> We're the ones that may talk to you every now and then, you know, before your retrieval or when you're getting your embryo report, that sort of thing. So we are responsible for, you know, growing and creating and preserving patients' embryos. So we do egg retrievals, we freeze embryos, we warm embryos, we do embryo transfers, we do inseminations, we do all of that sort of stuff kind of in the lab. You are the actual people behind the magic. Everyone's kind of important, but you've got the real secret sauce here. <laughs> yeah, we literally make the babies. Like I have made babies with my two hands. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. Okay, so today we're talking about fertility, but specifically anovulation, which is different than amenorrhea, which is not having a period. Today we're talking about actually not ovulating, which obviously, as it sounds, can pose some problems with our fertility. But can you kind of define what is anovulation and then also what causes it? Yeah. So anovulation is when you are not ovulating. And like you're saying, you have to ovulate to get pregnant. If you are not ovulating, you're not going to get pregnant. And there can be a, a wide range of reasons why someone isn't ovulating. And part of the diagnostic process is hopefully trying to figure out why. It could be from things like PCOS or endometriosis, hormone imbalances. It could be like a physical issue, meaning that you may not have an ovary. And so maybe you're only ovulating from one side. And so you have anovulatory cycles here and there. So it can be a, a very wide range, but those are kind of the the first things that we think about when a patient is coming in and having ovulation issues. Yeah, you're truly not releasing an egg at the appropriate times, right? Okay, so how would you know if this was you? Or do you still get a period? You just don't have ovulation? Is your period going to stop? Are there going to be signs and symptoms like your uterus swelling? How do we know we're not ovulating? So this is very dependent on the person. Some people are still having regular cycles. So they're having a regular period, but they're not ovulating and they're still shedding that lining. But then there are times where, especially with patients with PCOS, they have very irregular cycles. And so they may ovulate and then it may be a couple months before they have another cycle and things like that. And so unless you are actively tracking your cycle, it can sometimes be hard to know if you are ovulating or not. So if you're having a regular cycle and you've been trying to conceive for a certain amount of time, but you're not tracking your cycles yet, that is something where a physician is likely going to check for if you ever decide to go into the clinic. Now, if you're having irregular cycles, that can be hard to, to determine because you still may be ovulating here and there. But really the, the easiest way to determine if you're ovulating is to track your cycle. So with that being... LH test strips and potentially progesterone strips as well. So when you ovulate, we're really right before you ovulate, your LH, which is luteinizing hormone, which is the hormone that is involved in ovulation. I don't want to get too sciencey, but that hormone will surge or spike. If you ever talk about, hear people talking about, you know, I'm, I'm surging now and all those sorts of things. It's taken like a pregnancy test. So it's a, like a test strip. You dip it in your urine. 
And unlike a pregnancy test, it will always be positive. <laughs> so you will always see two lines. But as you get closer to ovulation, your LH starts to rise and that test line will start to darken. And when it gets as dark or darker than the control line, you are surging, your LH is surging. And that means that you will ovulate in the next 12 to 24, 36 hours or so. So when you get that surge, it doesn't mean you're ovulating right that second. It means you will be ovulating the next 12 to 24 hours. It's, it's definitely a range dependent on the person. And so that is a, a good positive sign that you likely are ovulating. But to confirm that ovulation, really you want to test your progesterone as well because it should rise after your LH rises. So I don't know if any of you guys have seen some of the charts that are out there. After LH rises, it goes back down. And then sometimes up to a week after your suspected ovulation, your progesterone will begin to rise as well because your progesterone is rising to thicken your, your uterine lining to support that potential implantation of an embryo. So there's definitely some hormones that we can follow there. And there are lots of companies out there that offer LH test strips and progesterone test strips. The biggest thing is learning how to read them because they're not always easy to read. Like I said, you will always get two lines on like a pregnancy test. And so determining is this line really dark or, you know, is it darker than the control? You know, those are the, the times where I'm like, oh my gosh, because I've taken them myself. I track my cycle literally every single month. And so there, it takes a little practice to read. And so some of the, some of the, the test strips out there have apps that accompany them to help you try to figure out whether it's positive or not. And there's lots of YouTube videos and things out there that can that can kind of help help support you in trying to, to read those. But that is kind of how we are confirming ovulation at home. If you ever went to a clinic for treatment, they would confirm ovulation in those same ways, but with an ultrasound as well. So they would check LH, they'd like you to check estrogen and progesterone and FSH and all those things. But then they can also see via ultrasound. So they can see when your follicle size gets really big and nice and plump and it will likely ovulate soon. And then they can check you in a few days and they can see that that follicle has shrunk, meaning that the egg is no longer there. So lots of ways that we can kind of check that there. But I think most often, especially when patients are just starting to try to conceive, they're doing at-home testing. I know that was a lot. <laughs> no, that was really helpful. But I do have a couple of questions. Do you ever have, or would it be possible do we see people have an LH surge, but no ovulation? Or do you, is it possible that you don't ovulate? So you, do you get that progesterone rise if you don't ovulate? Or when you don't ovulate, you don't get that progesterone rise? How does that work? How does, I guess, anovulation impact both the LH surge and the progesterone that we would typically see rise and fall systematically? Yeah. So there are a couple things. So if you, you can have an LH surge without a progesterone rise. And so the, I am not an expert um, on the specific hormones. So if yeah. you want to fact check me, please do. Yeah. Um, you can have an LH surge without a progesterone rise. And so in those cases, some people will say it's, it wasn't a productive ovulation. Like your, your LH rose but the egg didn't actually get released to yeah. trigger that progesterone rise. Um, and then there are some people who just don't get an LH surge at all, meaning that it's possible that um, their ovaries aren't, they're not growing the egg to maturity. They're not getting released properly. There's a lot of places where things can go, you know, not as hoped. The other thing that we take into consideration is FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone. That is the hormone that tells your follicle to mature, to grow, because we are born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. And so, you know, every month your body is recruiting a certain number of follicles and that FSH is what is maturing them enough to where they are ready to ovulate. So there can be a lot of dysfunction in, in all of those hormones, FSH, LH, progesterone, and estrogen. So those are all hormones that Typically, if you're in a clinical setting, they are monitoring or potentially testing to see if you've, you know, got a deficiency somewhere or maybe something's too high and all of those sorts of things. So 
definitely if you if you what I usually tell people is there are some great charts online and not everyone follows these charts don't get me wrong but they're a good guide to start with to kind of understand when something should be rising when something should fall and what is somewhat normal because you know everyone's cycles are a little bit different and just because they're slightly off doesn't mean you're not ovulating appropriately but it's a nice guide to have if you're if you're newer to tracking your cycle yeah Okay, so when would someone seek fertility help in terms of, okay, I've been monitoring, I am having some irregular cycles, I'm, you know, maybe not seeing that LH surge, or I'm checking my progesterone and I'm not seeing it. When do we, is there a certain number of months? Is there, you know, we need to try for this long? So many people say, you know, I heard that you have to try for one year before you seek fertility, but then I've been seeing more recent actual physicians say that's not true. You don't have to, you should come to us kind of sooner than that. So Mm -hmm. what's, what is the true answer? How do we kind of determine where we fall on that spectrum? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, if you are concerned, go see a doctor. Yeah. And I appreciate that physicians are open about it because there are guidelines that say, Hey, if you've been trying to conceive for over a year, you should seek treatment. That is, that is a perfectly fine guideline. And if that's what you want to follow, fine. But if you're older or you know you have PCOS, endometriosis, or, you know, something of that matter, or you know you only have one ovary, or you know your partner doesn't have the highest quality sperm or whatever, it never hurts to seek seek treatment earlier. Um, really, the more, the longer we wait, the lower our chances get as we age for people who have eggs and for people who have sperm. So I am all for like, if you are concerned, go see a doctor, uh, especially yeah. recently because consults for a, I mean, a lot of fertility clinics are backed up like six weeks, eight weeks. So, you know, you are automatically going to tap on two months just to wait for a consult a lot of times. So I, I say, if you're concerned, go for it at the bare minimum. If you've been trying to conceive for a year and either have had multiple miscarriages or haven't conceived at all, definitely go seek out a specialist. Wow, that is a crazy wait list. Is that new since COVID? Wow, what do you think that's about? We have seen, yeah, so we have seen a big uptick since um, COVID, which, which is very weird because in the embryology world, a lot of pioneers of the field and people who have been doing this for a long time retired because they were, they've been doing this for oh. a long time. So they retired, but we saw an increase of patients. So it was kind of inversely, you know, it wasn't super helpful for, for clients. Yeah. So a lot of, <laughs> we were having an embryology shortage, but then we were having an increase of patients. And I think a lot of it was COVID kind of grounded a lot of people. And a lot of people realized, what they valued and hey Mm -hmm. like I want a family I want to grow my family or add to my family or start a family whatever and so a lot of people started to try to conceive during COVID and then realized that they were having issues and so you know right at the end of 2020 and into 2021 huge influx at least that's what I saw personally a lot of clinics kind of having a big boost there of of patients and I think a lot of people realize like it's not necessarily as easy to conceive as we thought it is. Uh, you know, who uh, the World Health Organization just released updated numbers. Ten years ago, one in eight people suffered from infertility, and now it's one in six. So it's very common, and unfortunately, I do think it will continue to rise with environmental factors and people waiting longer to have kids. I only see infertility kind of increasing, unfortunately. Wow, really? That's harrowing. Yeah. I mean, we don't have, I'm thinking about like in my brain, little cartoon, like characters, and there's only six of them. So eventually, what do you think will happen? All babies will be kind of like lab created in IVF? I wouldn't say all babies. It's hard to know, you know, predict the future, you know, (laughs) but I do think we will start to see. (laughs) Yeah, I do think we will start to see more patients making a push to preserve their fertility. So I could definitely see people, young people saying, I'm not ready to have kids yet, but I know fertility is on the on the decline. Let me consider freezing my eggs, freezing my sperm, maybe getting a fertility workup just to see where I'm at. I mean, I've got no workup. I have no plans to have kids in the next 
three years. And I, I mean, being in the field, you know, you get a little worried, but I've had a workup done and it's just nice having that knowledge to know, hey, you know, I may need to change my family building plans based on what my fertility health is telling me and my partner's fertility health is telling me. So I'm a big advocate for at any age, if you're curious about your fertility and it's something that you know you want in the future and you're not ready at this moment, go get an evaluation. A lot of it, thankfully, a lot of insurances are finally getting on board with, you know, covering some of these things, at least diagnostic testing. So it's getting better in terms of coverage. Okay. And what would that look like if somebody was like, all right, I'm curious. I want to see, you know, what's going on inside my body fertility wise. A, do you just call them up and say, Hey, I'd like to have an initial consult or how do you do that? And also like, what can we expect from that visit? Absolutely. So some patients get referred to fertility clinics from like their OB or their primary care. That's who they're seeing. And they're like, well, I'm not having able to conceive. What do I do? And so they get a referral to a fertility specialist, but you can absolutely just call the clinic. You don't, most clinics, you don't need a referral. We, we call these patients off the street, which is totally fine. Like it's not a bad <laughs> thing or anything. Um, you're more than welcome to call the clinic and schedule an appointment. And that initial appointment, you are typically meeting with your physician for the first time. And it's kind of a trial. I consider it a trial period for both people. It, it really d- depends on why you're seeking seeking them out. If you know you are going to need treatment, I think it's a different conversation than someone who is coming in just curious about your fertility. So I'll just talk about someone who's curious about their own fertility and may not know that they have an issue. Typically that conversation is, well, what are your goals? Are you wanting to have a family? Do you have anything at this point, any reason that you're concerned that you may not be able to have a family? Like patients who have even considered having a family and then, you know, they find out they have cancer and they're like, well, I need, I don't even know if I want a family yet, but I, I want to have the option, you know, what, what sort of options are out there. So the physician's going to talk to you about your general history and likely your, your fertility history, you know, your periods, are they regular? Are they irregular? Have you ever had anyone tell you had PCOS or endometriosis? You know, just general lifestyle questions too. Do you smoke? How often do you drink alcohol? Even into your parents, like, did your parents have any fertility issues conceiving you? And so they go into family history a little bit. And then at that point, they're likely suggesting diagnostic testing. So a very, very common one is an HSG, which I will not give the full name to because it's very long. I never pronounce it correctly. But essentially what it is, we are testing, not we, I do not do it. The physicians are testing if your fallopian tubes are open. So the ovaries release an egg and they travel down the fallopian tube to meet the sperm in the tube. And so if your tubes are blocked or they're scarring or you've you've had them cut for a tubal ligation, you will not be able to conceive or you'll have difficulty conceiving because that egg can't get to where it needs to go. So that's a very common test. It's, I wouldn't say it's painless. It's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. If you're a type person I'm all for uh, physicians giving patients meds for for IUD placements and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But that's a very common one. Um, Typically, that's coupled with blood work. So hormone testing. Like I said, they're testing your FSH, your LH, um, your progesterone, your estrogen. They're often testing your um, testosterone as well, your TSH and thyroid and all of those sorts of things, as well as doing a vaginal ultrasound to determine your antrophological count. And so your antrophological count coupled with your AMH, which is a blood test, can kind of give the physician an idea of your ovarian reserve, which is really important because if you have a low ovarian reserve, you've got limited time in terms of trying to conceive because you have less eggs available. If you have a normal ovarian reserve, you may not need to rush, you know, you you may be able to take your time sort of thing. And then the other thing coupled with this, which I always mention because I think people forget your partner. Your partner is very important in this process too. It's not just, it's not just the eggs, the sperm are important. And so anyone who messages me and says, I haven't been able to conceive, what should I do? I'm absolutely going to say you should get some diagnostic testing done, but so should your partner because mm. the sperm is half the process and you would be surprised how many people think that it's not the sperm and they are a large cause of infertility as well. And so bring your partner with you because the amount of time I've literally seen patients go months without a semen analysis 
and they spent all this time and all this money and then the per their partner has no sperm. And so I'm like, we, we wasted some time. We could have done an analysis and then gone from there. So you should be getting all that diagnostic testing, but your partner also will likely get some blood work done, some hormone testing done and a semen analysis. That's very important because we want to make sure they've got some swimmers. <laughs> so what kind of things can we see go funky with male hormones? So the male side, I'm not quite as familiar with just because so much focus is on, you know, the person who's got eggs, but testosterone is a big one because mm. they, it, it helps produce a lot of the sperm and things like that. Um, varicoceles are very common. So blockages or restrictions in certain, some of the tubules that cause morphological defects in the sperm. Age is also important for sperm as well. I know age is a big one for people who've got eggs that sperm. You know, sperm quality and DNA integrity decreases with, with age as well. So that's an important factor. Hormone-wise, I think they also look at FSH, testosterone. There's another one that I cannot, that is slipping my mind. I cannot think of it. But there's another one that, um, that they're usually testing men for as well. But typically the semen analysis, they usually start with a semen analysis. I'm not going to lie. Most, most clinics don't start with blood work. They're starting with a semen analysis. And let's be honest, it's easy for them to get. It's non-invasive. It's a fairly cheap test. So honestly, I think one of the most lucrative tests in diagnostic treatment for infertility is a semen analysis. It's affordable. It's quick. It's not based on your cycle because some of these other tests like HSGs and things and blood work patients have to come on a certain day of their cycle versus semen analysis. If you've got two days abstinence, you can, you can go to the clinic today. So, so I think that's such a valuable test and it gives us so much information in relation to the price. It's a very affordable, you know, diagnostic test. So does that mean that on the male slash semen side that hormones are, are not really ever too much of a concern, but it's almost always the actual semen itself? like the actual sperm itself is the problem rather than hormone. What we're in, in females or the, you know, the egg carrying person, it could be hormonally based like PCOS or it could be the egg itself. So typically with sperm, the hormones play a role in creating the sperm. Got so it. it's almost like a cascading effect. If yep. their hormones are off, it will create issues in the sperm but just because they have sperm or uh, semen issues doesn't necessarily mean it's a hormone issue, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So one creates the other, but if you have an issue, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a hormone issue. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. And you mentioned scarring of the fallopian tube. What would cause that? So a handful of things. Some of it is actual actually physical. And the reason I mentioned this, because there are lots of patients who come after um, car accidents or other, you know, things. And so that physical piece is, is bigger than you think. Um, and so I always mention that because there are lots of people out there who, who end up in accidents and things and, and have some scarring. It can also be from STIs. So chlamydia is a big one that causes some infertility issues, specifically fallopian tube related Sometimes it's from prior procedures, like if they've had endometriosis removed or fibroids or things like that, that could have created some scarring in the uterus and the tubes. And I think some people are, you know, just born with, you know, tubal issues, not necessarily scarring, but where they've got some damage or blockages, things like that. And so not only does the HSG kind of test for that, they call it fill and spill. So if you ever see someone with a like, ultrasound and it says fill and spill and that's what they're doing they're filling up the uterus and it spills out the side of the, of the tube so yeah so so surgeries and some people are just born with with tubal issues and it's an anatomy thing and so they're born with without a tube. i've seen people born without a tube or have had them had had them removed for some reason or another oh like i know what i'm saying <laughs> not only does the hsg tell us if the tubes are open, oftentimes they can help um, help open them. So if there is a small blockage or narrowing somewhere because they're pushing fluid through the tubes, oftentimes that gives you a little increase of, 
of your chances for a few months after doing that HSG because we've kind of pushed some fluid through and potentially opened up some areas that were a little more narrow. Okay. All right. And how would you know, my mind is just like reeling right now. How would you know if you were missing a tube or an ovary? Like, is that something I've literally never had an ultrasound of my belly. So I don't know if Unless I remember my pediatrician feeling my belly as a child. So maybe they were checking for it. Maybe it's something that your OB feels around for. But how would you know? Or maybe do a lot of people not know until they experience fertility problems? And then they're like, well, into adulthood. And they're like, oh, I've been missing this whole piece of my body. Yeah, unfortunately, it is very common that a lot of people don't know because it's not common to do a vaginal ultrasound so these are ultrasound probes that are um, placed vaginally and that's how we're able to see the ovaries some of the testing they can't see like the the cavity of the uterus with an ultrasound so sometimes they have to do other procedures to be able to see if there's fibroids and things but a lot of people don't know I've never had a vaginal ultrasound I, I had an ultrasound when I got an IUD put in but like I don't know if I have both my ovaries I have no idea yeah me neither yeah wow unless you like as a young person had like issues with your cycle like you had severe pain or something like that maybe they would have found out because they did an ultrasound at the time you know people who have you know endometriosis and PCOS oftentimes their cycles are filled with kind of more painful periods and so maybe they got an ultrasound then but for like the average person they don't know until they try to conceive, which is something that I don't love. Like, I wish it was part of a regular, like, pap exam or, like, you know, what, you know, wellness exam. It'd be nice if they can't cost that much more to do a five minute vaginal. I'm telling you, it doesn't take that long to do the ultrasound part. It's like 10 minutes. Wow. It never, ever, ever ceases to amaze me all the things that we don't know about women's health. And I know this includes men as well, but I just feel like women's health in particularly has been truly neglected. And it's, it is just unreal to me to think that you know, I guess people who are much older than us, like literally, 70, 80, 90s year year old, they were well out of their childbearing years by the time IVF got super popular. They may never have had children because the access to this information wasn't available. And they're like the chance is gone. I guess it just it shocks me that the opportunity we've always had women around and it has been so neglected that we're in 2023 and we still don't know so much about the female body that it blows my mind every time I have this reaction every single time I'm like, wow, and it just feels like a new like, you know, Yeah. And I completely agree. Like I knew very little about my body until I got in this field. And I was like, I am college educated and I had parents and friends and family who, who went to school and have had kids and all these things. And I'm just now finding this out at 23 years old. Mm -hmm. Like that is crazy to me. And so just the fact that I've been exposed to it and know it, that just like tells me how little like the average person really knows and I'm a huge advocate Mm -hmm. for like comprehensive sex education Mm -hmm. and reproductive health knowledge like all this is so important and I grew up in a very small town I Mm -hmm. live here now I moved back we had no sex education yeah I mean there wasn't even like they were like here's a tampon here's a pad good luck and I was like okay And it's just, it's not talked about enough. And, and, and the places where it is talked about, it's in an abstinence standpoint or a fear mongering standpoint and not really, you know, teaching people, how does this really work? And when do I know something is wrong? Or when should I see a doctor? It's not framed that way. And so this whole, your whole life, you're like, I don't to get pregnant. I can't get pregnant. I'm too young. I don't want to be a teen mom, blah, blah, blah. And then when you're ready to get pregnant, you don't even know, you don't even know what to do. You don't even know how to track your cycle. You don't know what's normal or, you know, how do I know if I'm ovulating? Because it's not something that's taught to you. 
And if fertility is truly on the decline, which I truly believe it is based on the research that I've seen, and it's going to continue to, you know, decline, why are we not having that conversation? Why are we not saying, I'm not saying we should say, we should, you know, having a bunch of teenagers having kids, but having a basic understanding of how it works, I think is beneficial, at least when you get to the high school and college level, because I get, I get people are like, well, it's not an appropriate conversation. And there are some scientific things that are, you know, concepts that are harder to grasp. But I think a 16 year old, if they're having kids at 16, they can understand how it happens, you know? Yeah. Well, if you have your period at 16, you deserve to know what's happening in your body. And I think that's where I land on the on the topic is that it's not about what you do or don't think kids should or shouldn't know. It's that something is happening within another human's body and they deserve to understand what that is. Um and then as your parent, you can teach them what to do with that information. But that basic anatomy, that basic understanding of how to work with your hormones. I mean, I just think about how many lives would have been changed, how many people would have made different decisions one way or the other. It doesn't matter. Earlier on, had they just had the information, it literally is the same thing as the old ladies that know nothing about their body but they probably could have had children had women's health been prioritized because a hundred years we did have mm-hmm. medicine it's not like we were still you know going to people's home and like sprinkling herbs on like broken foot and broken <laughs> feet and stuff like medicine existed a hundred years ago we mm-hmm. could have been prioritizing women's health to just have have more advanced medicine in 2023 i think and it, it is it's sad yep. to me it shocks me every time but it also once all of that settles i i just get like really frustrated because it is frustrating mm-hmm. it's very frustrating that there are literally adults out there that don't know what is going on with their body i mean children too like you say 14 15 year old mm-hmm. if you are old enough to have a period to get an erection you need to understand what is happening in your body and then i think it's up to families to teach yep. their children what to do with that but just i agree to know. i agree and that's why i think if you are curious about your own fertility or your own family building potential i don't care how old you are yeah. Go see a doctor. Go get diagnostic testing. Start tracking your cycle if you're curious. I'm not trying to conceive right now, mm-hmm. but I've mm-hmm. been off the birth control for three years and learned so much about my cycle and about how my mood changes and about how my energy changes in that in that cycle in that month. And so I think it's so important, regardless of your age, if that's something that you want to know make it a priority. Advocate for yourself at the doctor. Hey, something isn't right. Or, Hey, I'm really curious about this. You know, maybe my mom or my aunt had issues getting pregnant and I'm not trying to conceive at this point, but I really want to know because it changed, like you were saying, it changes your decision. It can change your decision because it did for me. I wasn't ready to have kids, but I got my fertility workup done and my AMH is fairly low. So I can't, I have, I have the fertility the ovarian reserve of someone who is is 10 to 15 years older than me wow and so that changes plans yeah. you know that changes how we decide to plan the next five or ten years of our life and so a lot of people don't you know instead of me waiting five or ten years and then finding out that we can't have children or it's more difficult for us to have kids than we do with IVF I know now I can make a decision on my healthcare now. And so I think that's the important piece too. It doesn't necessarily have to change your plans, but you have the option to do something about it. Mm-hmm. If, it, if, mm-hmm. it if it potentially could change your plans, you know, it's, it's up to you. You have that knowledge. You have that knowledge to make a decision. Yeah. It makes me think about all the people that are stuck in, like I say, we just started fertility treatment support and every single call somebody says we just wish we would have known right there's someone in that couple that says if we had known we would have made decisions different and that is one of my biggest takeaways is that within fertility spaces in like in general there is just not enough access people do not know what is going on in their bodies and there is nobody out there teaching this and the internet has made it better but it has also muddled it with information that is 
maybe not always right. I think a lot of people are really good intentioned on the internet, but sometimes and fertility specifically, it is as individual as your thumbprint. You need to know what is going on in your body before you go around messing with things like hormones Mm -hmm. and supplements and like big, big lifestyle changes, like diet things, like removing whole food groups out of your diet. I've seen people go to extremes. And so I just want to caution you that make sure you're getting information specifically to you. You're working with a provider who is on board with your goals and on board with your timeline and honors your preferences and really values kind of what you want out of your fertility, right? They are an important part, but they shouldn't be the driver. You and your partner should be the driver. You by yourself should be the driver Mm -hmm. of what goes Mm -hmm. on with your fertility. I mean, I think that is, I think not a lot of people have that permission. I think a lot of people come to fertility treatments and they feel very, gosh, a lot of things, very sad. There's some guilt. There is embarrassment. There's shame. There is that regret mm-hmm. of, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have done things differently. There's so many things. And so they almost feel, regardless of if they are made to feel this way by their medical staff, by their IVF staff, but there is this sense of, I need to just do what I'm told so I can get what I want, which is a baby. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know mm-hmm. and have permission a good IVF doctor will work with you. They want to be collaborative, right? Mm-hmm. So find somebody who mm-hmm. does actually value you in that way and wants to be a team with you because it is really what that's a- about. Yep, I I think that is absolutely fantastic advice. And what I'd love to add to that is regardless of if you've gone to a fertility clinic before or not, you've likely gone to some sort of medical professional. And what sorts of things did you like about that experience? And what sorts of things did you not like? And what are some of the things that you value in your life in, in a healthcare setting in general? Take those things with you when you go to a clinic. You don't have to know anything about fertility, but just your experiences with healthcare professionals in the past can help you decide, is this a physician that is going to work for me? Is this a clinic that I want to get care with? Because infertility is a hard, 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 hard journey. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's very stressful. Like you said, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of um, conflict potentially between relationships with you and other family members, with you and friends. And so it's already going to be a difficult journey. You want to make sure your team, not just your physician, the whole team, is someone that you want to work with. And yeah. so, you know, take those things that you value. I'm literally getting like chill bumps because I think this is so important. Take those values and those things that you didn't like about other, you know, maybe their financial team wasn't easy to work with and you don't want to deal with that again. You know, take those things into you, into that initial consultation and take note of how you feel mm-hmm. after that com- conversation and consultation with the physician. I'm very much into like gut feel- feeling sort of thing. Like I'm a very scientific person, but I also believe that that, <laughs> potential spiritual or you know emotional feeling is very important in the process because you spend a lot of time there if you're getting treatment you're there every other day you're talking to the financial team often and so it's not like a one-off when you're getting a pap smear and you go you know every three years you know you're seeing them a lot and so it's a very different relationship than you would potentially have with other sorts of physicians so I like for people to keep that in mind and I actually have a free guide to choosing a clinic on my website, I think it's got some great points. It talks about the physician. It talks about the cost. It talks about the lab, which is a very important part because it's obviously I'm part of the lab. Um, it talks about all of those things and just gives you some points to think about before you go to that consultation because there is some prep work you want to have done beforehand. So you go in and have a productive conversation with the physician and potentially other staff that's there. So that's really my two cents because I've had so many patients be like, say the same thing. I wish I'd known this, or I wish I'd done a little more research or, or talk to someone else. And, um, you know, the social media piece, like you said, you know, that misinformation is killer for people who are so desperate for any sort of information um, and desperate for that child or for that pregnancy. And so really get good at, at determining what's, you know, good information and what's bad information. And keep in mind that we will never, anyone on the internet, unless they're, they're, they're your actual physician, because I know that does happen, We will never know you better than your physician who sees you. And so while we can provide knowledge and things for you to take back to your physician, 
we're never going to know you like someone that your actual provider would. So I never claim to be a doctor and I, I try to keep things very general, but I hope that I give and provide enough knowledge for patients to be like, my doctor never mentioned that. Maybe I should ask them about it. Or, you know, I saw this particular thing and I thought it may be relevant to me. Let me take it back to my doctor. The point is take it back to your doctor. Yeah. You know, you can't just take the word for, and really even the actual physicians that I have met that are on the internet, that are actual physicians, take it back to your personal physician because they know you the best. Absolutely. We will link that freebie. And here is one of my hottest tips for finding a physician that you like. When you call to get an appointment, whether you are calling for the first time or you're calling to change facilities and where you get your procedures done and see your provider, ask the person who is making the appointment, say, I'm looking for a couple of things in a provider. Can I share with you what those are and get your opinion on who I should see? Those people who are making those schedules and it's usually the front desk ladies who are also checking you out and greeting you. You guys, A, they're going to get to know you. They love to like know who you are as a human. And also they know their doctors. IVF practices are, well, not all of them, but dare I say the good ones, uh, they are very different than the hospital system. They're much more like a family than they are a hospital. And so it's going to be a different experience. Most IVF clinics are making you feel super loved and like they are right there with you. And it's not like they're right there with you. They really are cheering you on. They really are right there beside you. You feel loved and seen and supported. When you go to the hospital, it ain't that way. But That's another story for another day. What I'm trying to tell you is everyone at your IVF clinic cares about you and they're going to want to get to know you just like they get to know and love each other. So ask the person making that appointment, who do you think I should see if I'm looking for a doctor that X, Y, and Z? And they will be like, oh my gosh, I've got the perfect doctor for you and they can see you in, well, I guess eight weeks. Well, they can see you in eight weeks now. But, you know, that is... Those those ladies are, or those people up front, not always women, gold mines of information. They know yes. so much stuff. Use them because they they love you too. IVF mm-hmm. clinics are I I think that's they're fun. Great advice because the clinic that I worked at like had two fantastic physicians, but their personalities were so different. Yeah. One was very type A, they were very on top of things. Um, potentially came off a little cold, but it was because they were very, you know, put together and they never missed a beat. And then we had a physician who was also fantastic, but they were more lovey and and lovey-dovey and huggy. And, you know, so it's very interesting because I think that's such a great idea because, you know, the front desk people that I worked at at my last clinic knew those positions like the back of their hand. So if I had called and said, hey, I really want a position that is on their shit and you know, very type A and is always going to be, you know, right on time, they're going to say, hey, I have a position for you. Or yep. or if you, you know, ha- you, you say, I need that position that's going to hold my hand and, yeah. and really, you know, be more emotionally available for me. You, we've got that too. I think that's such fantastic advice. I love it. It really works well. It's something that I kind of, I got to be honest, there's like pulled it out of a hat one day and was like, try asking the ladies up front when you call to make your appointment, who they suggest. And I got really great feedback. They were like, oh my God, I, I I know what doctor you need. And they ended up loving their doctor. And then I tried it again. And that person also loved their doctor, had a great experience. And I know there's no, or maybe there is, I'm not aware of it. I've never looked into this, but I'm not saying this from an evidence-based place. I am saying this anecdotally. And because it's just something I have seen in my own very, very, very limited and short practice with fertility support. But if you love your doctor, I think it makes the IVF process a little easier. And I always tend to think those people are more successful. And I think it's because they're relaxed and they feel, they feel safe and they like trust the people working on them. And so I think it matters if you love and trust your doctor. It does. It matters. I think the the trust part is very Mm -hmm. important because you may come to your your doctor with an idea that's a little out of the box and you have to feel comfortable enough approach them with that idea and it may be a fantastic idea your doctor might say oh my god that why didn't I don't know why I didn't think about that let's try it out but if you don't have that trust to approach them 
then it feels very much like a factory and you don't feel like you're really being seen or heard as a patient or feel like your concerns are really taken care of. And that's so important, especially in my experience, I find that this journey is so, so personal and, and very emotional and, and physicians have to be aware of that and be willing to hold you up at times. Yeah, absolutely. Aww. This has been such a like good conversation, a fun conversation, informative. This has been so many things. Yeah. And I literally have like days worth of stuff to continue talking about. I could talk about this forever because we haven't even gotten into, we're, we're just at the consultation and potentially some (laughs) diagnostic testing. We haven't even gotten into any treatment yet. But I think that's the place to start is that consultation and really starting to take note. And the other thing I'll mention is don't be afraid to get multiple consultations. I know sometimes the financial piece can be a barrier to that or your location. If you're rural, there may only be one clinic. But if you have the means and you have the location where there are multiple options, get get multiple you know consultations. This is, like I said, you're going to be spending a lot of time there. You're going to be spending a lot of money there. A lot of emotions are going into this. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're feeling comfortable where you're at. And so I'm all for patients getting second opinions, another consultation. I'm all for it. And your physician should be too. If they're, that's in my guide. If if they're like giving you some attitude about getting a second opinion, that's a problem in my opinion. (laughs) Bye-bye. Gotta go. (laughs) They should be wanting to work with other providers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That collaborative care goes beyond just you and your provider. You want a provider that's also, you know, collaborative with other practitioners because a lot of times it some, you know, it, it can be multi-layered. You're going to need a couple of practitioners working on your case. Um and that's totally okay, but you want a provider that's welcoming to that um that type of environment. Okay, I do have one final question and this is just something that I'm curious about. Why would someone need to abstain from sex or I guess ejaculation is probably what matters um, for two days before coming in to give a semen sample? Yes, I I love that you caught on to that. Yeah, so um, most clinics um, will say that you want to have at least two days of abstinence, but no more than five. And that is because it can, it takes a certain, Okay, so if you're below that abstinence period, say you just had intercourse or you ejaculated less than 24 hours before your sample, we're going to see lower volume, we're going to see lower counts in general. And so it's really just a way to standard a normal range so that we can can easily, so the way that, that who, I'm like going all on a tangent, but I have to give a little backstory to make this make sense. The way that WHO, World Health Organization, determines what's normal and what's abnormal is by looking at thousands of samples across the world. And so if we don't have that standardized range of when they're going to look at the samples to determine what's normal and what's not, then that data isn't as conclusive because we've got someone who's got a month abstinence, we've got someone who's 24 hours abstinence. And so it's a way for us to standardize and put you in a range of normal or abnormal. And that sounds so bad to say normal, you know, put you in a range, but that's kind of what we're looking at. We're comparing your values to what WHO, who has said is normal and abnormal based on that abstinence period. So we want you to follow that abstinence period because we're comparing it to their numbers that were created using that same abstinence period. I think that's the best way to explain it. So, and what we see in the lab, like I said, when it's less than two days, we see lower volumes. We typically see lower count, but we see a little bit higher motility. If it's after five days, we usually see lower motility because some of that sperm has has died or lost motilities because it's been sitting in there for a while. We usually see, we're more likely to see like gel clumps, which are not necessarily an issue, but you know, we want to make sure that our range is in the same range as what we're comparing your values to, essentially. And so what a lot of patients are very like, two, don't, some say two whole days, that's so long. And some say, well, it's been like a month, so I guess I got to, you know, ejaculate in the next day, so I'm ready for my <laughs> my collection. So I see all sorts of things. And that's, the, that's another key piece to trying to conceive, you know, your physician is going to talk to you about your sexual health. They want to make sure, are you having pain with intercourse? Are you having erectile dysfunction issues? How often are you having intercourse? Because if you're having intercourse once a month, 
that's not enough for you to get pregnant. And they may just say, hey, we want you to up having intercourse or maybe, hey, we're having some, you know, mental health intimacy issues. And so that's why we haven't had intercourse. Let's go talk to a sex therapist mm-hmm. and see if we can mm-hmm. work that out first before we do any medical treatment, because it could just be an intimacy thing and that's, and we're just not having intercourse and that's why we're not getting pregnant. So lots of aspects. You can look at it from so many directions, but I think that's a, a really, a really funny question about the, the abstinence period, because it's usually something that people are like, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> I didn't think about it and I also didn't know it and I just wondered why because I did know that mm-hmm. you know I know about that refractory period but it's not 48 hours which is why I was like what is going on here yeah yeah and and there's some another key takeaway is you know sperm typically takes 72 to 73 days to go from immature sperm cell to fully mature and swimming sperm and so when physicians suggest making any sort of lifestyle changes or any sort of adding sort of any sort of supplementation or things like that, we tell patients come back in three months because it's not going to work right away. It takes that long for if you're starting a new medication now, it's just affecting the sperm that are stem cells now that are um, immature sperm. And so we need to you know give them time to mature. And so we tell them to come back and in three months. And I did not mean to say stem stem cells. They are not stem cells. They are immature sperm. So I misspoke on that. So I want to make sure I made that clear. Nice. Cool. Thank you for that. Okay. This has been such an amazing conversation. Oh my gosh. I have learned so much. I already felt really kind of in control of my fertility, but as always, there's more to learn. And I I never considered going to have a workup kind of before this, before I was ready to have kids. So that's a really interesting perspective for people to consider is it's just a deeper look into your fertility, what's going on in that moment. And, you know, will you stay on the trajectory that you have have you have yourself kind of on right now, have always envisioned for yourself, have always planned, or will you pivot based on what you find in that consultation? Yeah. You never know. So it's great. To, it's great to have the knowledge for sure. It is. Lisa, where can people find you? What is your Instagram? And also what is your website? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Although I don't post on Facebook super often. It's all at Elise, the embryologist. So website, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, at Elise, the embryologist. Nice. I love it. Ah, Elise, thank you so much for being here with me today. And to all of our listeners, thanks for hanging out with us, you guys. It's always a great time. This conversation was extra fun to me because I knew nothing coming into this conversation. And now leaving, I actually feel pretty solid on the information. I feel like I maybe could regurgitate this to someone else and be able to teach them just a little bit of their options of what they can do in order to learn more about their fertility, maybe arm them with some questions of what they can ask their provider, give them some tests that they might be able to explore and ask if that's appropriate for them based on their goals and and their finding of that consultation. So you guys, I hope that you had a fun time listening. I will see you next week until then bye actually before you go let me grab you because i want to share a device that is helping me take control of my fertility and that is the temp drop wearable thermometer it is a thermometer that i slide on my arm before i go to sleep and it takes all the data points and takes my temperature throughout the night so that i don't have to do the work in the morning when i wake up i simply sync it to my phone and voila i have all of the graphs and the data points that it has taken throughout the nights on my phone and it has the data for the past couple weeks and months so that I have nice patterns. I love being able to have that insight into my menstrual health. If you're interested in getting your own temp drop, I will drop a savings code in the show notes for you to grab that. You can save $10 on your purchase of temp drop with the savings code in the show notes. All right, see you next week. Bye, y'all. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.